Chapters 5 to 8 of Marriage, Its Ethic and Religion by P.T. Forsyth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Christian View of Marriage Continued 3. As Ethical, the Object of Marriage As to the object of marriage, nobody, when contemplating marriage, ought to be thinking about its object. That would be a piece of pedantry. People marry because they must, not because they should. Because they like each other, and not because they owe a duty to the public, or even to the ideal. I do not offer advice to those about to marry, or those who want to marry. We are discussing an institution, not John or Elizabeth, though I confess in the bygoing I find John and Elizabeth more interesting than institutions which are more valuable. We are asking what is the function of marriage in the order of things. If we looked no wider or deeper than the elementary necessities of the state, we should say it was to provide population, to carry on both the nation and the race. But men and women are much more than pawns in the state. A man is much more than a case of the race. He is not like a single copy of a book, whose damage or destruction would not affect the book at all and the most populous state, were it on no higher level than population, would only mean multitudinous degeneracy, a populous no. We have to face the question why the race should go on, and to meet it with a moral answer. Both state and family are there for moral objects. All the great institutions of society are there in the long run for the development of moral personality. And marriage especially has this for its end, the education of the moral soul, private and public, the production of a race worth multiplying. To marry for that purpose is priggery. If marriage has not that effect, it is a failure. Marriage is there for the conquest of that elemental egoism which is such a useful servant and such a fatal master. In plainer language, but less exact, it is there to educate people out of their native selfishness and impatience. Not that it has that effect on all, though it is all that some have to do that for them. We can have the egoism of the couple or of the family. We may have met cases where the members of the family were not serving society, but made a close ring or a hard ball in the midst of society or against it. Their object was to lay society under tribute to the family as far as possible. It was family booty. And their conduct had the maternal note of believing and trying to make others believe that there was no such family in the world. Living for one's own family alone has been said to be no better than living for one's own health. But it is not quite as bad as that. When we have had our amusement out of that spectacle... We should remember that the family affections and prejudices are all that the poor people had between them and absolute egoism. You have Burns, with a judgment which goes to a finer form of the extreme, saying, To make a happy fireside climb for weans and wife, that's the true pathos and sublime of human life. But that is no more true than the other extreme. Life has issues far more grand and moving than domesticity. But if it is an error, it is a very wholesome one. There is a lower depth even than familiarism. 
It is where one member of the family makes even his family tributary to his own egoism, and he goes out of life having learnt nothing from it, but that he is a self and not a mere thing, yet only a centripetal self so far, a self whose next stage must be a severe reconstruction on a new centre. Egoism cannot bear egoism. Two of a trade cannot agree, and two egoisms mean one divorce. The question is asked, among some of the socialists, for instance, if marriage be a private or a social affair. Some would say of it, as of religion, that it is a privatsache, and all that society has to do is to relieve the parents from the care of the children, and to bring these up in public nurseries, which would more properly be described as infantry barracks. But marriage is neither a wholly private nor a wholly public interest. It turns upon personal affection, but, as we have seen, it has some of its greatest effects and purposes far beyond personal happiness. Happiness may only be sought under moral conditions. No one has a right to happiness who knows nothing of obedience and cares nothing. No happiness should be without responsibility, latent at least, and especially it is responsible to the society which makes happiness secure by its order and shelter. Marriage means family cares. It means the wise sacrifice of the parents to the children, and the wise service to society of both as a family. The family not only provides citizens, but, what is far more, a school of citizenship. Citizens are made and not only born. The social question is far greater than the population question. It concerns the moral quality that is reared in the population. And the first school of this is the family. It has to make not simply men, but fellow men. And nothing can do this like family life. Homes, which are mere firms for the couple, or hotels to the young people, are of less than no social value. They must be centres of moral culture, of culture not in ethics but in personality, and in its growth by fidelity, service, and sacrifice. Citizens must be reared by those who contribute them, and that can only be in the moral atmosphere of family life, and not in the unstable climate of mere brotherhoods, nor in the rough-and-tumble of partisan conflicts or faction fights. The children are there not simply to be a motive for family industry as heirs of the family property, but to be worthy agents of social production. They are not legatees of the family estate when it is cut up, but heirs of the best moral culture that family life represents, a culture that is not cut up as it is multiplied, but is the grand patrimony and growing unity of the race. The child is neither the mere reversionary of the family estate, nor a piece of it. He is a soul entrusted to the family, to the parents especially, to be reared to freedom, moral and religious. Maxima devetur puerjis reverentia semper. Yes, semper. The fifth commandment is very necessary now, because respect for parents is in decay. But why is it in decay? because the commandment has a converse. Honour thy boy and girl, that their days may be strong in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. 
parents ought to honour their children and not merely fondle them, and not merely maintain them, and not merely punish them. Because that aspect of the matter has been neglected, parents need to be taught to honour the child, whom they too often treat with the extremes both of neglect and indulgence, as a nuisance or a darling. Some families would be more valuable if they had more respect, even at the cost of some superfluous affection. Considering the effect of marriage on the moral nature both of parents and especially of children, it comes home to us that the marriage question is really a part of the education question. Generation and education are morally inseparable. The parent is the chief moral teacher. The family is not merely a coupler, but a transmitter, not only a link between the generations, but the living vehicle to the future of all the best moral wisdom which such parentage gathers from the past. It is in our children the best of all we have been made by experience lives on for the future. From the religious point of view, the object and effect of marriage is very great and deep. Nothing goes so deep except contact with Christ himself in the shaping and toning of the soul. This takes place in countless subtle ways, many of them below the surface of our immediate consciousness. But there come times and crises when these subliminal secrets of the heart are revealed. But I do not dwell on that because it is perhaps more appropriate to the pulpit where it might oftener appear, and I have already touched it. It might be added here that from this moral standpoint, the medieval view of woman was defective, and its chivalry semi-barbarous. It represented an idolatry rather than a service, a passion rather than an affection, an erotic, as I put it, rather than an ethic. And we find its hollow interior illustrated in the double morality still found in connection with the medieval survival of militarism, where the treatment of one class of women is a sheer Pharisaism compared with that of another. The Matter of Subordination it is impossible to speak of the Christian idea of marriage without taking some note of the woman's subordination, which seems to be involved in it, and which is resented by so many. The resentment need not surprise us in an age when revolt has taken the place among the virtues which used to be held by the other extreme of resignation. In this connection, I would make the following observations. 1. Our moral principles as Christians must flow far less from precepts than from the revealed nature of the Christian God. Our moral foundations are in the holy mountain. All our springs are in Him. Now the nature of that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father and Son coexist, co-equal in the spirit of holiness, i.e. of perfection. But Father and Son is a relation inconceivable except the Son be obedient to the Father. The perfection of the Son and the perfecting of His holy work lay not in His suffering, but in His obedience. And as he was eternal son, it meant an eternal obedience, for the supreme work of Christ, so completely identified with his person, could not be done by anything which was not as eternal as his person. But obedience is not conceivable without some form of subordination. Yet in his very obedience the Son was co-equal with the Father. The Son's yielding will was no less divine than the Father's exigent will. Therefore, in the very nature of God, subordination implies no inferiority. 
it is as divine as rule for it is self-subordination on an infinite scale it is not enforced it is sacrifice it is not mere resignation it is no slavery but willing service and if man is to be holy as he is holy our self-subordination to each other is not necessarily inferiority nor need obedience be slavery there is an obedience bound up with the supreme dignity of christian love so that where most love is there also is most obedience so little is it true when kant says that for moral purposes it is indifferent whether we believe in a trinitarian god or a unitarian for the individual it may matter less but for society it means much whether self-subordination is intrinsically divine and truly godlike two in some things the man is subordinate in the earliest nurture of the child he is quite subordinate and the mother has a great start of the father in moulding those first years to which our last come circling round in such an affecting and influential way three objection is taken to the precept of wifely submission in ephesians five twenty two wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the lord now one might first ask whether the happiest and most influential homes are not on the whole those where this principle reasonably prevails but leaving that i offer these remarks one what a woman's heart and her interest crave is love much more than lead and the same passage teaches the man to love his wife at least as much as himself i e with his whole self two the verse before urges the members of the church to submit themselves to each other in the fear of god so that the precept to the wife is no more than a particular application of the general precept given to every christian male or female which therefore enjoins also due submission in its own kind of the christian husband to the christian wife it means mutual and complementary forbearance concession courtesy sacrifice three the submission is as to the lord that is to say it is under those moral conditions which inhere in the christian principle and which forbid the love of rule and preeminence for its own willful sake it is not clear that absolute obedience is enjoined to a domineering tyrant the husband contemplated is head only in the sense analogous to that in which christ is head i e in the spirit not of right or power but of love and sacrifice and the husband contemplated is to love his wife as christ loved the church by giving himself for it if the wife give herself to the husband an equal obligation to give himself is created for the husband if their love endure in the higher love of christ common to both four and this leads to the recognition of limits to the submission it could not go to the length of renouncing christ at the husband's call if he were a pagan and a bigot and if the pagan husband desert his wife she is not bound to him any more she is free it is not unqualified obedience it is not absolute therefore it is not slavery it is submission under the conditions of the church and the kingdom and especially under the conditions of love which has service for its principle five the wifely obedience which was normal in judaism and paganism is taken up and kept but it is also put on such a new base as applies it equally to both parties and transforms it from an outward law to a willing sympathy 
service and sacrifice become now in christ crucified the divine and common principle of love in which the wife is invited to lead what is the objection to the woman leading in sacrifice as the divine principle of moral dignity in the cross as the natural expression of love in practice and as the divinest principle of life why should the christian woman not aim at being advanced in a common yielding in christ six this spirit of service and sacrifice is a most needful thing to turn the stoic into the christian the moral egoist into the humane brother today we are much preoccupied with the cult of personality the religion which cuts ethic off from religion and reduces the church to an ethical society many people are obsessed in forms coarse or fine by their own personality and what is due to it accordingly they are victims of recalcitrance or of self-respect or of self-realization their supreme duty is that which they consider they owe to the integrity and independence of their own individuality and especially to their moral personality their principle is moral self-culture and everything is subordinated to that even their sacrifice has its eye on that it is moral egoism it is done to promote their moral development for the good of what they consider their soul it is an aim that needs conversion it would make society not a fraternity in any sense but a conglomerate of moral atoms bursting with self-respect who have taken up their moral culture as a profession in life this frame of mind may or may not need to be well shaken but it does need to be christianized in order to be really moralized it is an insufferable excellence till it is converted till its eye is taken off its moral self and all the priggery of it and people are taught to leave their prickly independence to save their soul by losing it and find themselves by forgetting themselves seven it may be asked whether the spirit of true obedience and subordination of being forward to serve does violence to woman's nature and prevents her finding her true self in so far as that nature is different from man's does it suffer is it perverted by having service for its first principle is it prevented from coming to itself are the most willing courteous serviceable devoted women spoiled women do we shrink from women of that temper as if they were traitors to their sex and nature there are women we shrink from but are they these the higher woman is the higher is her freedom if it is claimed that she is finer than man so much the finer is her freedom but the high and fine kind of freedom comes in service and by it and if woman is normally at her highest and finest in marriage if it is the married and not the single that is the type of the sex and gives its law and freedom her freedom as a sex must stand on such preeminent sacrifice as is there that is the line on which a woman finds her true self and that is the line of her true leadership the last shall be first eight it may be said that this obedient spirit in women marked but an early and cruder stage even in christianity and that it was destined to be shed and to fall away like slavery as christianity came to itself the answer is that the case of slavery is not analogous 
the principle of any human creature being the absolute property of another is quite fatal to christianity and must be outgrown but nowhere in the new testament is woman regarded as property and certainly not in marriage wherever she is so regarded christianity must bring a radical change in so far as woman's position anywhere is slavery christianity must alter it but service obedience is not slavery except where people at any age have not outgrown their teens and to lead in sacrifice is the true eminence in christ i e the last moral resort sacrifice is the man's christianity as well as the woman's if there be neither male nor female in christ but both the christian form of subordination is sacrifice which is the genius of love a woman's glory more than her hair and the very kingly heart of christ the promise to obey is but the promise of the sacrifice which love cannot help if it seek not its own is kind does not behave itself unseemly and never fails womanhood always suffers where duties are postponed to rights service to aggression and sacrifice to assertion and to sneer at such a valuation of moral powers is to despise christ and renounce the cross a newspaper has recently appeared among us which is largely advertised in the streets and has i am told a growing circulation it is written by women of high education who generally speaking sign their names to what they write the paper shows in some respects conspicuous ability and is i believe eagerly read the doctrine of the economic independence of women which is everywhere part and parcel of the suffrage movement leads in the case of this ably written paper to strange results motherhood outside marriage by means of temporary unions for the purpose its formal recognition by society and the conditions on which the new maids of the future will claim and enforce it arguments against the immoral permanence of marriage complete freedom of union under the guidance of passion between men and women and other speculations and contentions with regard to the relations of the sexes especially in the letters from correspondence such as could not be reproduced in your columns these matters and the handling of them shed a flood of light on certain aspects of the woman's movement this newspaper does not stand alone nor are these aspects a mere negligible quantity from a letter by mrs humphrey ward in the times of june nineteen nineteen twelve leasehold marriage there are two chief phases of the marriage question as a public or parliamentary question one i have touched divorce the other raises issues much more dangerous it is the question of the legalization of terminable or probationary unions what have been called leasehold marriages these are really no more than partnerships at will it is pleaded that as marriage is primarily a matter of consent the consent is terminable the same consent that makes breaks if people can agree to come together they can agree to part and it is urged they should often part for the good of the soul in either case or as it would be put in the interest of the free moral personality the arrangement may end at the instance of either side with due provision as the law might determine for the offspring as if anything could be due provision for children but the joint and loving care of the parents 
How should you expect a child to feel? How do you think its moral growth would be affected by its feeling towards a parent that had passed through several hands, either before or after its birth? And what is the exact idea? Is it monogamy while it lasts, or may either party have another brief menage going on at the same time? This is an idea which has a far larger hold of cultivated but non-Christian society than we are often allowed to realise. Abroad the propaganda has gone much farther than with us, and especially its advocacy by women in the interest of unwedded motherhood, deliberate and legalised, the right to a child. But you cannot see much of such society in this country also without perceiving how attractive the notion is to many of both sexes today. I observed lately that the most aggressive German book in this interest was advertised in an English translation. If more facility for divorce is pressed in the interest of the poorer classes, this is often urged in the interest of the better-to-do, whose fortune, leisure and half-culture make their tastes more vagrant, and their independence of society more easy and assertive. The plea begins by recognising the difficulties and even tragedies, which we all admit in connection with marriages unhappy and yet indissoluble. It may start also with what seems a worthy concern for the dignity of love, and it urges that it is denigration when a union continues from under which the love has ebbed and fled. But its way out of the difficulties is downwards, not upwards. Its interest is individual, not to say selfish. It is not social and its concern for love gravitates, for want of moral lift in it, to become facility for passion. It has more erotic than ethic. It is the ruin, in the end, of the moral element in love, because it is not only the ruin of the family, but it destroys the moral development of the parent's personality. For fidelity can be educated by fixity. It is not fidelity if it only lasts with liking. The suggestion, of course, is absolutely unchristian and mostly anti-Christian. It goes back, I do not here say from Christian principle, which many would reject, uh, but from Christian civilization, which is the greatest thing civilization has yet achieved. And it can be met with no sympathy, either from Christianity or society, except in so far as it is sometimes an honest but unprincipled effort to cope with evils which exercise us all. I will only mention a few points of criticism. 1. It is said that it would tend to diminish vice. If it did, it would be at the cost of all the dignity that belongs to marriage by the moral element that gives the institution permanence. Besides, it is very doubtful if it would have such an effect in the long run. It is practically polygamy, only consecutive and not simultaneous, and it is a polygamy that ends at will. What kind of men and women would be manufactured at last by such an institution? The weaker sex would more and more return to its oriental position as property. The stronger would become a pasha. It means the denigration of sexual relations, and that is both the soul and root of prostitution. It stamps woman as inferior, like all polygamy, and it brands her, like all mere passion, as a mere means, while the man is an end to himself. There is no moral development for woman there. It is slavery. 
and if it is said that the woman is as free to end the relation as the man practically that is not so for woman is more constant than man she clings as man does not to the children and she is also handicapped for all livelihood outside the family and so she would mostly be the victim always outside fixed marriage the woman stands to be victimized most two as the woman is naturally more constant than the man it is the woman that would be the chief sufferer by such an arrangement and in the relation of the sexes she has too much to suffer as it is the proposal reverts to the pre-christian idea of woman polygamy and slavery go together whether the polygamy be consecutive or simultaneous monogamy for life is a great evolution in the interest of the weaker sex out of polygamous conditions whose mischief is the divided interest of the man in the woman besides prostitution is largely due to the great change in social conditions which prevents marriage let these be altered even at much cost to the existing order but do not let the marriage idea be debased facilitate the better distribution of the fruits of industry promote economic independence and make marriage more possible reduce the standard of luxury in women and cultivate a simpler life this change is certainly very great but it is far less than the change we discuss our evils cannot be cured by tampering with the sanctity of marriage as has been said you do not cure theft by abolishing property i have described leasehold marriage as polygamy only polygamy successive and not simultaneous and i should like to add here that as between the two forms of polygamy it is the successive that is more deadly to society because it is more destructive to family life islam is more stable than a society of legalized liaisons would be yet islam is less for humanity than israel because of the very different position of the wife nothing but permanent monogamy is compatible with family life and all it means for society the demand for a relaxation of the marriage bond and especially for terminable marriages is largely promoted by the selfish and vagrant influence of the man at the cost of woman and it is the woman's interest that is protected by the dignity and fixity of marriage in so far as the two interests are put in competition we may perhaps look at it in this way the growth of humanity is twofold in quantity and in quality on the one hand the race grows in numbers and is prolonged in time on the other hand it grows in power resource civilization culture on the one hand it spreads over the face of the earth in space and extends through history in time on the other it dilates so to say it becomes ampler fuller richer in mental mastery and spiritual content it is fruitful multiplies and replenishes the earth and it acquires more and more dominion over the creatures it grows in size and grows in civilization now each of these forms of growth means burden labor and sorrow but the burden of the one falls chiefly on the woman and the burden of the other on the man on the woman chiefly falls the burden of population on the man chiefly that of civilization i am speaking of the chief stress observe and on the matter of continuing the race the chief burden falls on the woman it is upon the one organism rather than the other that nature lays the labor and sorrow in this respect and it is the woman therefore that requires special consideration of the institutions that have most to do with the continuity of the race the institution which has charge of this in particular is marriage 
and the only form of marriage which really harmonizes the two functions and specially protects and compensates the woman in her function is fixed and monogamous monogamy organized guarded and sanctified by church and state is in the woman's interest especially she has most to lose in the slackening of it to tamper with it is to unroof the fabric in which maternity has its shelter it is a suicidal thing that the male interest which makes for the race's power should promote an ethic which destroys the female interest of the race's continuation that the male interest of power should acquire the vice of power selfishness at the cost of the female interest of existence and the sacrifice it entails if the powerful man discourage monogamy in the interest of his selfishness he is pulling down the house in which alone even power can continue to live and grow it is often said that women live in the moment and that it is men who have the sense of implicates and consequences that women are engrossed with particulars and personalities and men look before and after to universals and to general justice but here at least the case is otherwise the man lives in the moment it is the woman that lives in the world of consequences and it is the woman therefore that has the prime interest in that social morality which compels the instinct of the moment to come under the obligations created by consequences monogamy is the charter of maternity the bridle on vagrant selfishness the shelter of the weak the stay of the fickle and the one institution for converting erotic chaos into a moral order of society and the lamentable dreadful fact that so many women are forward to promote terminable marriage or even single maternity is really a tribute to the social security that permanent monogamy has given monogamous marriage has sunk so deep into society and made the position of women so secure that such advocates can form no idea of what society would be especially for their sex if their program got its head they do not know life the sex which has such experience of consequences has little imagination for consequences and these women cannot envisage the situation their theories would produce they sap marriage under the shelter of its roof and they can only be forgiven as one says because they do not know what they do three it is said that it is motherhood that is holy not wifehood but i shall shortly show that under this system motherhood must either cease or suffer i only say here two things first that the revolt of the sex means revolt against wifehood rather than motherhood because the man and woman make a claim on each other's egoism which is not made by the child the child can even flatter it as needing a protector but the spouse certainly limits it and if the worst evil be thought to be such limitation of egoism wifehood is sure to be resented second all motherhood is not holy to say that it is is a piece of sentimental naturalism belonging to the inferior fiction and leading us to a social morass some motherhood should be the object of deep compassion and kindliness but not of respect as the fatherhood in it deserves a social scourge no society can be founded or maintained upon the pity which is so precious in our private and personal relations the woman's protest four but it is not only the best interests of the woman that protest against these terminable marriages but her finest instincts whatever may be the case with individuals 
all that is most womanly in the sex turns against such ethic the delicacy and dignity of woman resent it the finer her soul is so much the more does she measure the higher aspects of the great and unreserved committal she makes in marriage and she feels it so much that she has courage to make it only on the foundation of a tender and sacred faith that is for life a life for a life what she gives is her whole life her whole personality in its most central and sacred sanctuary and that should only be given for life the fixity of marriage for life is only the social counterpart of the great spiritual unity of the moral personality in its sacred surrender it is often said that marriage may be an episode for a man but for a woman it is her all therefore her nature demands that it be once for all a woman deceived in this matter has a wound that never closes the tragedy does not go out of her life whether she cover it or not if she do not cover it if she rebel if she separate and take her way by herself she may be smitten so inwardly and sacredly that rebellion often seems a coarse term and public championship of injured wifehood a vulgar thing in a certain novel one such woman learns utterly to despise her husband and she takes steps to free herself a circle of her friends wish to celebrate her for her bold action but she turns away stung and disgusted a horrible grief says the writer came over her these people had no idea of the abyss of her sorrow the last surrender of soul and body did not mean for them the sacramental thing it did for her something in them must have long gone blunt and dull did they ever know what it meant to drop the last veil of the personality laying flesh and spirit in his hands everything in her rose up against them it was my holy fire she said my white flame and to let myself be fated about it all to be treated as if i were but a principle it is silly it is mad it is insulting have they no eyes to see how i suffer all that rises to such a height in womanhood all that so finely and sacredly feels rises also to protest against any ethic of marriage which makes it but a passionate contract instead of a sacramental union with a permanent mate if the true inwardness of it is so delicate and abiding for the one party it is not less so for the other you cannot have a double ethic here this feeling of the woman strikes the note of the whole relation life committal for both is of its essence and idea though of course at the present social stage for the hardness of our heart practical exigencies due to human weakness or wickedness may prescribe divorce carefully allowed under the sacred authority of state or church but let us note clearly that it is divorce from a bond which was contemplated as permanent which is in its idea permanent which is permanent as an institution whereas the legal recognition of unions terminable by consent would alter the inner nature and idea of the institution itself it publishes to the world the conviction of society that the principle of marriage is fleeting in its nature that it is a love which need not be expected to be lasting or faithful and that is a principle that could not be socially advertised without stirring up all that makes man most worthy and woman most womanly to protest and condemn if the institution led us to think so of love 
if it was based on such an idea of it, the whole conception of love would slowly sink, half dead to know that it could die. 5. The fact is that here the instinct of the true woman, educated by millenniums of experience of motherhood, points to the sound condition of racial welfare. The racial instinct is in her, not only purer but truer, and the finest and subtlest feeling holds the real clue and real power in the case. If we speak of natural selection, the secret of the truly natural selection in the continuation of the race is more vitally seized by the woman. Her instinct says that the race's renovation from generation to generation must be taken more seriously from generation to generation, and its principle made more stable. It may be true that women are more interested in individuals than in groups or even principles, but it is also true that they demand the whole individual for life. And jealousy is but the seamy side of that sound instinct. A woman's affections may be individual, but her relation to that individual is properly monopolist, however free. Individual as the passion may be, she is social enough to read in the bond more than passion, a moral permanency beyond passion, and she shapes the institution for more. Her interest, her preoccupation, may be in the present, but her instinct, her presentiment, her divination, is for the future. All this means that, as an institution, marriage looks beyond the individual or his moods, and has its great reference to the race and its future. But terminable marriage is based on the opposite principle. It regards the individual and not the race, and it regards the individual only on his impulsive side. It bends the institution from the service of the race to that of the individual, or even to that of his fleeting predilections. It is not ethical, but erotic. Individual happiness, or even the egoism of two, is not the supreme principle of marriage. That is a principle which regards first the welfare of society and its happiness. Now the first social interest of society is the family, i.e. not the parents alone and their enjoyment, but the child also, and sacrifice for it. Not the present, but the future. Posterity does as much for the ideal society as ancestry, and the worst indictment against terminable marriage is that it breaks up this family idea. It ends in racial suicide, or if not, it demolishes fatherhood, and to that extent damages childhood. Nature is more mighty than man's device, and nature will secure, on the whole, that the mother clings to the child when she has agreed to part from its father, or when he discards both from his concern. Fatherhood thus goes out of the child's life, even if motherhood remains. It also goes out of the religion of a race so reared, which would be left with but a motherly god. We estimate highly, indeed, the effect of the mother on men, on great men, and all men. But has the experience of that influence been gained under the conditions now proposed, of easy desertion by the father? Often, it is true, the widow as mother has to do what she can to supply the lack of the father, and to magnify his name in the memory of the children. But how is she to do that for a father whom she has exchanged for another? or one who has parted with her because one or both were tired of it. It is hard to estimate the influence of a father in the house, even if the mother do all the explicit training. 
and while the mother is stamped on the earliest years the father is stamped on adolescence and gives the child its personality among the world of men besides what removes the father in this way impairs also the care of the mother the whole system sacrifices the child to the parents and shows that they are not really parents but selfish erotics throughout i am not using the word in the grossest sense for unless all children are taken to be brought up by the state in public nurseries terminable union means that the mother is left with the children and her natural doom of bearing them alone is prolonged into the unnatural burden of rearing them alone the rich of course could make provision as to funds for this purpose but the change proposed rouses problems no funds can solve and besides it would not affect the rich only and its effect must be calculated upon its working in the mass and that would mean that the mother would be taken away from the very thing left her to do she would have to do what is done with evil consequences in the mills she would have to go to work merely to maintain the children she would educate she would be cast more than ever into the economic struggle not with other women only but with men more or less free from her responsibilities and either she would break down or her training of the family would it is so fatal to society to tamper with the fixity of marriage because it is most fatal to the weak elements whose defence a moral society ought to be to the woman's womanly quality and the child's moral growth end of chapters 5 to 8